This week on Broadway for Sunday, March 3rd, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Michael, you also had a directorial piece up uh, last week and this week. Uh, tell us how is it going. Well, today is the last performance of five, and it's been going really well. It's in a, it's actually being performed in a church auditorium, you know, one of those setups. Mm-hmm. And uh, two different nights, including last night, they had to put up extra chairs, which is always a nice uh, <laughs> a nice problem to have. You know, it brings me back to my high school days. And yeah, I, I'm r- very happy with. Um, with uh, how it turned out, I, I directed one short play in this evening, a short play is called Scenes from the Staten Island Ferry. And uh, just one brief thing is, you, you know, it's it's so interesting when you can see a show on multiple nights, which I don't often do now that I'm that I rarely am in them or direct anymore. But just to see the differing audience responses. And, and last night, the audience was um, especially with the play and we got uh uh the 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 lady who plays uh the female role Sarah Di Pasquale uh she got a laugh that she didn't get in in any other performances and it's actually one that we thought might be there but it had it had never happened so she was just so thrilled <laughs> mm. you know just little things like that just uh, can really can really make it yeah, it's the difference between you know uh, film and theater is that we get to keep finding the nuggets in in the text mm-hmm. as we go deeper mm-hmm. and deeper into it. Also with us is Peter Felicia. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books, one of which is Strippers, Showgirls, and Sharks. I love that title. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, <laughs> Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hi. So, how was in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore? <laughs> oh, yeah. Last night at the York Theater Company, uh, between performances of Lolita, uh, Josh Ellis, uh, a Broadway press agent of great renown uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, before he headed out to La Jolla. Uh, and I traded memories. Uh, he grew up in Philadelphia. I grew up in Boston. Uh, I married a woman from Baltimore, and I saw a lot of tryouts there. And uh, we just talked about the tryouts we saw here, there, and everywhere, um, from the ones that really impressed us, like Follies, to the ones that didn't impress us. He has a very funny story about a show called Huckam that's actually spelled Chu Chem, but 
the real pronunciation is Huckam. Can you imagine <laughs> people wanting to go see a show called Huckam? I mean, really, but the story he told about the performance he attended was really tore down the house. And so, uh, so it was a very nice night. And um, what was really great is, um, like Michael, we um, we had the same situation where um, capacity and uh, extra chairs. So, uh, so obviously there were people interested in uh, hearing what we had to say, and we're very grateful for that. Um, and so, for um, <laughs> almost two hours, we uh, we spoke and had a, a really good time. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, did you get the? Did you tell your audience members sixteen different stories? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what a nice segue. Uh, what what James is alluding to is that there's a wonderful uh, contest that's happening that I want to let readers know about. Uh, it's by the Australian Discovery Orchestra, and what they're doing is they're having a worldwide online vocal competition. Now, what's going to happen is 16 vocalists will be chosen to record new songs written by musical theater writers, some of which we know, for example, like Peter Mills, um, Sam Wilmot, Andre Catrini, um, who did The Astonishing Times of Timothy Cratchit, which has been done a few times now, um, certainly Steve Weiner and Peter Kellogg, who did The Rivals that um, I saw down at uh, the Bristol Riverside, and Peter, of course, did uh, Desperate Measures. So a lot of these people have songs that have never been recorded. Never. And what's going to happen is there's going to be a competition and um, you can find more out about it by um, going to, of course, the website, which is australiandiscoveryorchestra.com, just the way it sounds, australiandiscoveryorchestra.com, and uh, check into the 16 stories section and you will find uh, a way of getting in there to... uh, get your voice heard. Now, if indeed you uh, are one of the people selected, one of the Sweet 16, what will happen is you will be recorded on Broadway records doing one of these 16 songs by these uh, many musical theater writers. So I really think anybody who wants to um, have a career in singing, who's just starting out, or even a little established, who really wants to uh, get it out there, I think you should get involved with this. I think it's a very good program. I think it's a unique opportunity. We don't have things like this happen very often. And uh, imagine having an entire orchestra behind you. Sounds good to me. So I hope that you'll avail yourself of this opportunity if indeed you're a serious singer. Wow, that that's uh, Van Dean's Broadway Records? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, boy, does Van Dean make it happen. We have so much in his debt. You know, I mean, it really is so great how he, he gets all these recordings out there. Uh, and as a result, of course, spurs productions of these shows because um, it's very hard to get a production of a show if there's no original cast album. So, uh, so yes, Van Dean really helps it along. Van Dean's Broadway records and also Robbie Roselle's Broadway records. More on that later. Yeah, we're going to talk okay. about a little talk about <laughs> Robbie a little bit okay. later on. Uh, this um, uh, we talked with Van uh, many years ago. We should get him back on to get a catch up with him and see how he's doing and things and tell us what's going on at Broadway Records because it's just such it's become like out of this uh, idea in Van's head has become such a tremendous force and an important uh, part of the ecosystem mm. of Broadway. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and uh, taking on the international flair, uh, we didn't chat about this, uh, but it, it, it made me think about it when you brought up Australia, is that um, uh, we're coming up on this uh, uh, Shen Yun at uh, – is it mm-hmm. Lincoln, Lincoln Center? I mean, you can't get away from the advertisements of this thing, and it's constantly in front of us. Have, have either one of you ever seen this in the past or go, plan to go to this? 
No, but uh, um, you know, it's <laughs> apparently uh, it's apparently a cult. It's it's political. It's political, but it's it's interesting. It's interesting that they are uh, they're going. Uh, they're spending a tremendous amount of money to bring this uh, to bring this. Um, performance to Lincoln to the Lincoln Center area is it actually in Lincoln Center I'm not sure if it is or not yeah I think it's at it's at the the Coke formerly the New York State Theater right yeah well you know a a friend uh, recently on Facebook told a story about how he happened to be uh, uh, stranded on a desert island a couple of weeks ago and you know and a bottle washed up on shore and he opened up the bottle and the note inside of it was an advertisement for Shen Yun (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to say it's of no interest to me at all. Um, no, not, not to uh, me either. It, I just other than it, it's been so prominent in their advertising. Yes. Oh yeah, uh, no question. They're spending money on it uh, to uh, get people in there, and uh, for those who like this sort of thing, obviously it's very good. Um, I'm just never very much for reviews to begin with, and this is really what it is. Um, and um, so. So, uh, yeah, I haven't been invited, and that's perfectly fine with me. <laughs> so, um, we, you know, you had mentioned that you were over at the York Theatre Company, Peter. Uh, and I should mention to the listeners, Peter sounds a little bit off today because he's on a telephone rather than our, our normal uh, recording setup. We had a technical yeah. issue this morning, and uh, so we make do, you know. This is uh, live theatre. Okay. You know, yep, that's right. You know, the three of us, we're, uh, we're only just a radio star with just one weekly show. <laughs> yes. So I, I see what you did there. <laughs> you see what I did there? Okay. So Peter um in Philly, Boston or Baltimore was uh smack in the middle of uh the York Theater performance of Lolita My Love. And uh did you get a chance to see the actual performance? Oh yeah, I wouldn't have missed Lolita My Love. Actually I did see it um in um, Boston and Josh had seen it in Philadelphia. That's what's really spurred this that we were able to uh bring up our memories of what it was like way back when. And um I have to say that um when I wrote my book, The Biggest Hit of the Season, The Biggest Flop of the Season, I named Lolita the biggest flop of the season uh, because not only did it close in Philadelphia, but then Alan J. Lerner said, oh, I think I can fix it. Let's go to Boston. So it came to Boston and it still didn't get to Broadway. So um, I don't know if there have been many out-of-town trials that have closed twice on the road, but uh, this certainly counts, and that's why I named it the biggest flop of the year, even though it was the same year as Pretty Bell, which only closed once on the road, and uh, the same year as Follies which lost more money than any other show um, up until that point in time. Um, $800,000 was basically what it lost. Today, of course, if you lose $800,000 on a $15 million investment, you can claim you had a hit. But back then, that was a lot of money lost. (laughs) Um, And one doesn't name Follies the biggest flop of the season, no matter how much it lost, because, of course, the artistic quality was wonderful. I think the artistic quality in um, Low Leaders, I wrote way back when, was the fact that um, it is the best possible possible musical version of Lolita than anybody could ever envision. I'm just not sure that there should be a musical of Lolita. And, um, 
the production that we saw at the York um, was cobbled together by Eric Hoganson, a very, very talented and gifted man who um, certainly did what he could to um, make the show even better. And uh, by using a framing device where Humbert Humbert, that's his name, uh, goes to a psychiatrist uh, because he has murdered and now um, he's in prison and uh, still he's going to talk to a psychiatrist to hope to work things out to some degree and find some sort of inner peace. Eddie tells us the story. And um, I have to say that my problem with this production more than anything else was the fact that Robert Sella playing the role um, seemed astonishingly creepy. And I think what you really need, not that he's available, is somebody like Robert Preston, who really is charming. Uh, We have to have the feeling that this is not a bad man, but a man who has had some Thing bad happened to him along the way that makes him a pedophile. And unfortunately, uh, Robert Sella came across as somebody who might be capable of a lot of bad things. So I think that was a real uh, fundamental problem. When I saw Lolita back in 1971, I'll never forget coming out of an intermission, there were um, two guys behind um, me, and uh, one of them says, Well, yeah, there's no sense in staying because the only good thing in the show is Dorothy Loudon, and she just got killed. <laughs> and the other person said, well, um, yeah, but maybe she'll come back in a flashback uh, or as a ghost or something. And they walked right back in the theater because Dorothy Loudon was so sensational, which she was. However, what I have to say, I really thought that Jessica Tyler Wright was sensational as Charlotte Hayes. Um, uh, ironically enough, my girlfriend said, well, you know, she's she's really too pretty for the role. So that's a, that's a very nice thing uh, for Jessica Tyler Wright to hear, um, that she may have been miscast because she was just too pretty. But um, she really did a very, very, very fine job on the song that really uh, stopped the show in Boston, which was called Sur la Quai. And um, she is trying to seduce Humbert Humbert into being um, her husband. Um, Humbert Humbert uh, rented a room in her house, and the reason he did it was not because he's interested in her. He's interested in the daughter, um, Dolores, uh, nicknamed Lolita. And this was played by a young lady named Caitlin Cohn, who I thought was terrific when she acted the part. Her voice was a little pitchy at times, I have to admit, but boy, did she play this mixture of savviness and occasional innocence, and, and, and legitimately, every now and then, she she was innocent of what was going on, but for the most part, she knew what was going on, and um, she really, really had the savvy that was terrific, terrific. Um, so, um, I, I, I can't imagine that there would ever have been ever, ever, ever have been a market for this show. Um, and certainly uh, less so now. Um, I don't think we'll ever see a real uh, full production of this show in these times when we're very, very sensitive to issues such as this. The irony is that once upon a time, Edward Albee, many years later, decided to adapt the leader as a stage play. And that turned out to be an issue in um, in this um, presentation at Mufti's uh, because they actually had to get permission from the Albia Estate because the Albia Estate has some sort of ties to the property now. And um, so there was a little note in the program saying we have to thank the Albia Estate for letting us do this. So, um, so uh, really, major talents have taken this on. And certainly there are many people who will say that the original novel um, is, is a masterpiece. But um, still, I think it's an 
awfully bitter pill for audiences to swallow. Um, however, what a shame that there's no real album of it. There was a bootleg album that was put out with terrible sound. Mm. But um, but uh, it's really too bad because John Barry, the composer, also wrote beautiful, beautiful melodies. And some of the songs actually got recorded. Um, certainly Shirley Bassey did Going, Going, Gone, the opening number. And uh, a few others did, too. And there's a beautiful song called In the Broken Promised Land of 15 that uh, is, is just so lovely. So John Barry is a terrific, terrific composer. And um, and uh, frankly, um, his score for Passion Flower Hotel, a British show from 1965, is one of my all-time British favorites. So um, I came to Low Leader in 1971 with great anticipation that he would do uh, some tremendous work uh, here. And he didn't let me down. But you know, the show did it just because it existed. So, um, yeah, it's interesting that you had this, uh, the, the, this rights sort of issue mm. with the Albia state and things like that. Cause we yeah. had this thing just this week happen with, um, with Mockingbird and, and the Harper Lee estate and Scott Rudin's production and things like that. Michael, do you want to catch the listeners up on what we know about it? Oh, okay. Uh, uh, well, yes, I think I can. Uh, that uh, there were all of these companies uh, across the country that were planning to produce the pre-existing stage adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird by Christopher Sergal. Is that the name? Sergal. Uh, Ser- Sergal. Sergal. S e r g e l. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, then apparently on no notice, they they received from Rudin's office a cease and desist letter that they could not produce the pre-existing adaptation because the new adaptation by Aaron Sorkin is currently running on Broadway, produced by Scott Rudin. And this confused a lot of people because, I don't know, first of all, you would think this would have – whatever the deal is, you would have thought it would have been spelled out long ago and it shouldn't have gotten to the point where you know several companies had sets constructed and were in rehearsals and then i think one of them was about to open in two weeks so um i don't I, somebody i think really really screwed up and who knows i don't know maybe somebody at some licensing organization lost their job over this i don't know uh but uh the the quick uh answer to what happened is that um Rudin has now granted the rights to the Sorkin adaptation to to at least some of these companies, and they may produce that version if they want, which is really quite extraordinary. Uh, to and 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 I, I would say most people would say is counterintuitive, but I guess he just really wants to establish this new version as the To Kill a Mockingbird, and he, uh, he and I assume that uh, Mr. Rudin thinks uh, doesn't think that if these some of these companies produce the Sorkin version that that will prevent people from seeing it on Broadway. Well, uh, a couple of observations here. Um, first off, um, yesterday I was talking to Mark Stetke, who um, is uh, part of the Drama Desk Nominating Committee, who said, in essence, this To Kill a Mockingbird that's on Broadway now is sort of like Doll's Hope Part 2. <laughs> and it rather mm-hmm. is. It, it, it is more of a sequel, um, because we do have the kids all grown up and looking back on what happened. Sure, you do get uh, many of the same scenes, but you get plenty of scenes that aren't in the um, uh, book or the Sergil adaptation. So, um, But what I found really fascinating, I don't know if you remember this, Michael, but uh, when the show opened, 
opened, there was a big deal about the fact that critics could not get copies of the script. Remember that? Mm, yes. And, so, and now, uh, if you're a community theater, you can get a copy of the script uh, and, and you can do it. I think it's really quite wonderful that um, this was the solution. But I have to say that my friend Jay Clark, um, who was one of the smartest people I know um, in, in, in theater, um, and I'm sorry he doesn't work in it. He, he worked for one uh, company, uh, for one of Broadway's most hideous Harridans, and uh, couldn't get along <laughs> with her and, um, and took his marbles and went home. But um, all things considered, Considered, he had a very good idea. He said, "What I think should have happened is that um, he should have uh, Scott Rudin should have allowed all these companies to do the show, the Sergio show, and take ads in the program, um, and really spend money for full page ads in the program. And um, it would be such a pledge of good faith in that way. And I think that would have really been a nice solution, especially because, you know, it's not as if this if if you if you cast a little girl as Scout, um, you really can't use her um, in the Sorkin adaptation. So I." I do believe what should have happened is that all the productions that were licensed for the Christopher Sergio version should have been grandfather clause in. If Scott Rudin said, okay, from now on you can't do it, uh, that's another story. You can do mine. And I'm sure, uh, I mean, really, what a thrill to do a show that's uh, currently on Broadway. Mm -hmm. That's not unprecedented, as you may remember. Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, immediately started allowing productions of School of Rock um, way back um, uh, when it was still um, happening on Broadway, and you could do that um, in, in your community theater. But still, the idea of doing something that's right on Broadway right now is a real thrill for a community theater. So at least um, Scott Rudin did um, what is one of the right things he could have done, and uh, I'm very glad that this was a solution that wasn't just um, you're screwed, go find another show so um well and all, it, all of, all of this ahead. all of this just happened so i don't know if he, we've even read that any of the companies have taken him up on the offer because right, i haven't seen that either right it's, I you know you can't, it's hard to just switch in midstream depending on it is on which point and and uh you know a lot of people have been weighing in on this on in chat boards etc and one thing i learned is that apparently there are two versions of this the sir sergial version oh yeah really it's and in and in one of them it says the narrator is a town gossip or oh. some of the town gossips but uh it, but what i read was that in in one version there is actually an adult and a child scout oh yeah mm -hmm. yeah uh -huh. i mean I, I don't know did, did uh, was that the case in the in any of the ones that you saw peter i can't say i remember Okay. Um, it, it's been a while since I've seen that adaptation, uh, even though it is very, very much produced. I can't say that uh, in my travels I've run into it very much. I would say it's been at least 10 years since I saw the last one. And um, I really don't remember if there were uh, one, a child and a narrator uh, at all. So, um, But I didn't know about two adaptations. That's very interesting. Uh, and I, I guess it was more of a rewrite than an adaptation, wouldn't you think? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. They, they didn't give the details. I, I think they're pretty close. But but I specifically asked uh, because somebody said that uh, uh, was talking about Scout. And I said, well, does the version with Scout have her as both an adult and a child? And the person said yes. Mm -hmm. So or maybe that could be possibly that that uh, one company just did it that way. I, I mean, I I really don't know. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, I, I think this is a, a really amazing uh, outcome to what was happening here because um, certainly Scott Rudin was the brunt of a ton of bad 
publicity for a while. And as Michael pointed out, he made a calculation in his head that said, um, that said that uh, I'm going. This to, is the best. Uh, yeah. I'm going to. Uh, you know, this is not going to impact our ticket sales right now. There is a theater company in Ohio that has a production coming up this week, uh, and they said that they're not sure that they can mount the Rudin Mockingbird in just uh, one week. Um, but <laughs> I would not think yeah, so. Yeah. So they're trying to figure that out. Or I don't know if they're going to push back the opening or do anything but they they they've been offered at but they've only got a, a week to put up the show um the if i well the other factor too is if, you know it's not as if this is uh brand new news that uh people would be doing the surgical adaptation so why didn't this come up from day that's one? what that's my question it, it, you know somebody really dropped the ball i don't uh, know who so um uh, it seems as though that the the company that is licensing to community theaters right. uh, sort of dropped the ball. And there is yeah. some connection between the Harper Lee estate and this licensing um, this licensing company. Um, and, and so it's all it, – the waters got very muddied there. And in fact, um, they're supposed to only license to non-professional theater companies, but – these right. the, and uh, you know what has happened over the years since the original licensing agreement in the '60s is that uh, non-professional theater companies actually started to have professionals involved in the theater companies. So it muddies the waters that some of these are semi-professional uh, productions that are engaging union and paid uh, performers. Um, so uh, it's interesting, and uh, Michael or Peter had mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, grandfathering in these productions, and I don't know the details of what's happening here, but uh, also there's this thing with um, uh, with um, artistic rights and, and rights granted and things like that, is you have to treat everybody the same. You can't be selective in how you mm. treat treat people. So while it makes companies look terrible at times, it, you know, uh, a large company like an Apple computer or Apple Inc. can come down hard on a small mom and pop operation that's doing something. You're like, why is Apple suing? Because they have to, because if not, it sets a precedent for other companies to, um, to step on these rights. So uh, Rudin was put between a rock and a hard place and having to protect the future value of um, of To Kill a Mockingbird production that's on Broadway right now versus, you know, being magnanimous. Um, so it, it it's a, I think that this is a really great uh, way. It's, it's not perfect for, especially for a company like no. the, the one out in England, uh, out in, um, not in England, in Ohio, that um, has a... Um, has a production coming up this week, but uh, I think they took some lemons and made lemonade. If I could bring yeah. this back to Lolita, um, I uh, that that was so interesting, and thank you for explaining the Albi thing uh, to the extent that you explained it, because I saw that note yeah. in the program and I oh, did, did not I did not get it. Um, I saw that that I saw that production on Broadway, which was a huge flop uh, with Donald mm-hmm. Sutherland, et, et cetera, mm-hmm. and. Uh, 
uh, you know, I guess it just all of this shows that uh, these things can be far more complicated than we assume. Uh, so that's just that's one thing we've learned. Uh, a funny little story. Um, I uh, was talking to my cast of the scenes from the Staten Island Ferry last night, and I happened to mention Lolita, and uh, and I and I was talking about it, and I mentioned uh, Lolita, my love, that is, and I said something how well it was such a flop that it never even got to Broadway. You know, it, it closed out of town, and somebody said. Where did it play out of town? Now, normally, I probably wouldn't have been able to answer that. But I said, well, I know it played in, in Boston and Baltimore. <laughs> no, actually, oh, Boston, and Boston. Boston and Philly. I'm sorry. All right. Follow up. Follow up. So the reason, regrets the error. Yeah. And the reason I know that is. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but um, but I. Know, what's, go ahead, Michael. Oh, you go ahead. All right. Um, Christopher Sergil, I want to make one other observation here. Uh, it, it's really something that, considering that Harper Lee was such a reclusive person, that she even let the rights out to Christopher Sergil. It's not as if he were Arthur Miller. Um, he did a lot of adaptations of um, novels like Cheaper by the Dozen and things like that, but he wasn't a famous playwright. And I consider it a minor miracle that he ever uh, got her to agree to this. Um, as much as I think it's a minor miracle that Clark Gessner, the unknown composer lyricist convinced Charles Schultz that he could do um, Peanuts adaptation as you're a good man, Charlie Brown. So um, <laughs> it's, it, it turned out to be the biggest cash cow, needless to say, in Christopher Sergel's uh, life because people really have an interest in this property and the idea of putting it on stage. And he did a very fine journeyman um, adaptation. Uh, if you like To Kill a Mockingbird, you definitely like his version. Uh, he, he, it was sort of paint by number um, and that's why I admire the new one so much, because it isn't. But I, I have a feeling that, um, given the fact that Aaron Sorkin is such a well-known hot writer, that um, a lot of companies will embrace the opportunity to advertise that they've got a show by Aaron Sorkin um, more than they have one by Christopher Sergio. Mm, so I think yeah. that's a possibility, too. And just um, just briefly on Lolita, my love, I uh, I left it intermission, and I haven't done that in twenty five years. I, I just I personally couldn't take it. And ironically, uh, I guess I agree with almost everything Peter disagree with almost everything Peter said. The things he didn't like, I I liked. Uh, I actually. Uh, I love Robert Sella, and when I heard he was cast, I thought, oh, that is a really uh, really good point uh that is a, a is definitely a selling point for me that he's going to be humbert humbert and i see what you mean about the creepiness i, I mean i think he has a very distinctive look um yes, that that lends to that and in fact i think one of his um best roles has been the mc in cabaret uh so yeah uh, so, another creepy character <laughs> yeah, right. Exa exactly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I. Uh, but I. I. I don't know. I. I just thought he. He was pretty perfect for it. Um, uh, we do agree on Caitlin Cohn as Lolita. I thought she was just great, and she really. I don't know what her exact age is, but she certainly looked. Just you know, pubescent or prepubescent. Uh, somebody uh, told me this doesn't make it true. But somebody told me she was twenty-seven. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. I mean, she just yeah, was. I know, really I know. That doesn't mean it's true, but that's what I heard. So, uh, but she certainly played young. Yeah, she really did. Uh, and uh, yeah, I liked her a lot. Did you like Jessica Tyler? Right? No, I really, really, oh. really disliked her, and I, I thought she did an awful job with that song, and the phrasing uh -huh. was all off. Everything, and I also uh -huh. thought the direction was not okay. 
Uh, yeah, I'm not going to mention the director actually, um, and uh, and also just just briefly, I, I don't know. I think if you if you do a show like this and you do uh, and you at least present it as it was, um, then you can say, well, this is for historical purposes. Uh, so I think that maybe they, I think that they should have just done whatever the final version of it was that was that was actually performed. I know that Lerner continued to. Uh, he did, yeah. Tinker with it, so I, I understand yeah. the impetus there. But I think yeah. that maybe it would have been because I because if you do this other this tinkering and this uh, you know the addition of the framing device, which I hated and thought was uh-huh. tremendously uh, cliched uh, at this point and, and an old hat. Um, then then you are saying to the audience, well, we we are trying to quote unquote fix it, and. Uh, then if it doesn't work then, then I think uh, you bear more responsibility than if you're just presenting it as, well, this is for historical interest. So that's how I look at it. But obviously, uh, a lot of people disagree with me. All right. So, Michael. Yes. <laughs> hey, old friend. Hey, old friend. <laughs> what do you say, old friend? Are you okay, old friend? <laughs> you saw Merrily We Roll Along at the Roundabout Theater Company's Laura Pelse Theater. Peter and I talked about it last week, uh, so why don't you weigh in on uh, Merrily? Well, kind of somewhat similar situation. I, you know, I think that I did see the original production, and I wish I had a clearer memory of it, but it was so long ago, um, and you know, there was so much going on. At, emotionally in 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 the press uh surrounding that production that i think it was maybe almost impossible to go into it and just experience it uh on its own merits uh there is a um famously uh a, a video of the original production that's at the if nowhere else you can find it at the uh you know at the, the theater on film and tape at the New York Public Library. So I, I'm, I'm going to try to catch up with that again and, and sit through it again. Because my um, overall memory is that despite it, all of its flaws, that original production worked best because it wasn't so it wasn't so uh, generally it wasn't so on the nose and it didn't need it didn't feel like it had to explain everything uh, you know, in minute detail, as far as the uh, the subtext, I, I think that as as the, uh, the decades have gone on and the show has been revised and re-revised and re-re-revised, I think that there has been an effort to. Um, I I think that they felt it was necessary to clarify the story further because it moves back in time, and I understand that. But I think that in doing that, they have just really made it so obvious in terms of the 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 characters overreacting to things and and just coming out and stating uh, you know their feelings at every possible moment and and underlining every uh, every sense of betrayal and and all of that uh, so i think that the the script personally has devolved since the original and and as i say i'm going to have to look it over again um to see if if i you know to see if i can get more details on that uh i i was very disappointed in this production i think six people is too few to do merrily we roll along uh, and I, I think it felt cheap uh although i did love the set i i thought the set was really great i i thought having all those objects uh you know on the wall as if it was the this is the uh memorabilia of these people's lives i i, I thought that was a really good idea but um 
I I just thought it was underpopulated, and uh, I. Rich and Happy is a song that initially I didn't like it because, again, I thought it was too on the nose. I don't think anybody actually in life actually says, look at me, I'm rich and happy. Uh, But that was just a stylized thing that uh, they tried to do in the original. And then, of course, that song was rewritten as That Frank, which is a lot more, uh, I guess, uh, more credible as something that these people would be saying at this party. I always thought, ironically, that Rich and Happy should probably be reinstated anyway because it is so great. It sounds so great when it comes up in the overture. Uh, but this production cut the overture, so that, so that uh, seemed less Well, ridiculous. yes and no. <laughs> well, it didn't use the uh, overture as an overture. <laughs> it used it as out music. Yeah, uh, or, at so, least, so or at least there, some Which of- is sort of interesting because, of course, it's a show about being backwards. So uh, they put it, the overture backwards. Um, so I, I want to address the issue, though, about um, look at me, I'm rich and happy. Yeah. Uh, it would be that would be a real problem, I would think, if he was saying it to somebody. But he's that's an interior monologue, and uh, he's saying it to himself. And um, so I, I think people would do that. Um, I I know I think you've said that before, and I guess that uh, yeah I mean I guess it can be lit and and staged that way that even though it's in the middle of the party he's just singing it to himself. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I can buy that. Uh, I didn't like, uh, there were cuts in this that I, I didn't necessarily like, you know, <laughs> oh God. Um, rich and happy was rewritten as that Frank, but there was a section of it that has been kept from the beginning until now. And that is the part where Mary Flynn sings. These are the movers. These are the shapers. These shapers. are the people, uh, that was cut in this production. I, I, do not know why. That's the one of the best parts of the song. So I don't know what the hell was going on there. Um, lots of individual problems here. Uh, uh, several of the several of the song lines were spoken instead of sung. And the first time it happened, I think, was uh, in the introduction to "Like It Was," where the guy who played Charlie spoke the words damn few instead of saying them. And I said, Oh, why did he do that? And then there were more and more of those. And I really, really didn't like it. Um, I didn't like the arrangements in the new orchestrations for the most part. I thought they were very fussy. Uh, even though the, the, the number of instruments is quite small, uh, relatively small. Um, I didn't like the thing that was done over and over again, where songs would start in lower keys and then modulate up. I thought that was pretty cheap um what else uh the book uh, you know i don't know mary is so in in this in this final version if this is the final version mary is so monstrous in that opening scene it's just it's just beyond all credibility that i don't care how drunk you get you don't behave that way at a party you just don't do it and i really can't stand that uh i don't think it was that bad in the original uh what else bobby and jackie and jack i think uh did uh, laid an egg in this production for the first time i've ever seen that song lay an egg maybe it's just that we're getting further and further away from the kennedys and people don't know who they are anymore (laughs) Uh, do you think maybe yeah sure yeah the sound thing especially sure yeah. yeah i i liked uh very much the um the actors playing Gussie, uh, the, well, the actress playing Gussie, Emily Young, and uh, the actor playing um, Joe Josephson and several other roles, Paul Coffey. But I, I thought all of the three leads were either mi- 
miscast or inadequate in one way or another. So that was a obviously a big, huge liability for me. And um, yeah, I, I, I just um, I, I'm going to be uh, on the negative end on uh, obviously on this well, production. You're certainly not the only one. Uh, but one thing I want to bring up that I thought was really uh, uh, fun was um, when Mary became a falling down drunk in that uh, opening scene, yes. <laughs> suddenly somebody took a picture. I don't mean in the audience. I mean on stage, you know, except he had his camera ready and took a picture of her on the floor because that so would happen. You know, the people <laughs> uh, looking for opportunities for uh, photos that right. uh, perhaps they could sell later. So I really like that detail. I've, I've not brought that up in, in the long, long review I wrote for Broadway Select or uh, on this podcast last week, but but, um, but I did think that was a terrific little detail. So, um, yeah, uh, I have to say that uh, it's really been split down the middle. Um, I've had um, a lot of friends who uh, have not liked it as you uh, have not liked it, Michael, but just as many um, who like it as much as I do. And I would say it's about 12 and 12 right now. Though I will say I know not one, not two, but three people who walked out of Lolita as well as you. So you're the fourth that I've heard of. So, um, oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah, so there's something there. All right. So uh, let's move forward into uh, further reviews. Peter, you got down to New York Theater Workshop to see Hurricane Diane. So tell us about this. Well, Hurricane Diane um, involves a Greek uh, god, Dionysus, in essence, um, played by a trans actor, uh, Becca Blackwell, um, who is is quite good in the part. But um, you really will appreciate this play most if you are familiar with the Greek myths. And if Michael suggests that we don't know much about the Kennedys anymore, I'm not sure how much people really know about the Greek myths anymore. I don't know. Are they taught in school very much? A lot? A little? Never? What? But, uh, but I do think that that is one of the things that is going to distance people from this play, because even if um, they think they know what's going to uh, what's going on, um, they're going to feel that uh, they're missing something because they're, they're not up on their Greek myths. So, Madeline George, the playwright, might have made a mistake in in really going to this because the rest of the play is great fun. Um, in essence, it's the Real Housewives of New Jersey. Um, I found it very interesting that um, this show started at Two River Theater Company in Red Bank, which is in Monmouth. County, and that is mentioned specifically in the script, Monmouth County, and so is Red Bank. So um, I imagine, I'm, I'm not sure if the tail wag the dog or what, if indeed once they got the production in um, Red Bank that they decided to mention Red Bank in Monmouth County, or um, it, it was there to begin with, and artistic director John Diaz, who's done a phenomenal job down there in this great, great, great theater that nobody should miss going down to uh, Two River, by the way. Nobody. Um, you won't believe your eyes when you get there. Anyway, so um, it was done there a couple of years ago, and here it is now at New York Theater Workshop, and um, the point is Dionysus is going to seduce um, each of these uh, four women who live in this um, gated community, maybe, um, the, a, a development, a track development at the very least, because um, there's one set of a kitchen, and um, when we go into each of the their houses, it's the same kitchen, because that's the way these houses are made, you know, identically. So uh, one size fits all in terms of the set. Um, and, you know, it's, it's uh, the type of set that you really expect to see in um, a, a development. So it's not flashy, but Rachel Houck did her job, and 
in making it um, an effective, um, nice, uh, spick and span type of uh, kitchen. So anyway, um, here comes um, Dionysus, actually Diane now, Hurricane Diane, in fact, um, coming to uh, visit each of these uh, women. Uh, it's impossible not to be impressed by Danielle Scrasgad, uh, who plays Pam, uh, because she um, is not unlike, if you know uh, the Married to the Mob movie, um, uh, Mercedes Rule's character in that. Uh, it's never established that she's involved with anybody in the mafia or anything like that, but she has that uh, rather come down to brass tacks, um, don't bullshit me type of attitude. Um, she's she's very frank, uh, the type who points her finger and, uh, and makes her point, and um, nobody's going to dissuade her otherwise. And it really is a hilarious performance, and um, it really is the highlight of the show. A lot of people, I imagine, will feel she's over the top, or a lot of people will feel that the writing is cliched for who she is. And I understand that. I think it just makes it beyond crossing the line. But I won't be surprised if people have a different reaction to that. So the other actresses are terrific, too. And it's very interesting to see Kate Weatherhead, um, who I admired so much in the other Josh Cohen, to leave that show and come to this one. Uh, I'm not sure if she originated the part in um, Red Bank, and that's why she uh, feels loyal to it. Um, but I believe she was with the other Josh Cohen beforehand, too. I may be wrong about that, but um, I think she was. But uh, what we're really getting from her is two terrific performances in one season. So um, she is somebody certainly to pay attention to. And um, it, the next time she does the show, I'm going to be very interested in seeing the third jewel of the Triple Crown because she really is a phenomenally funny comic actress. So uh, Mia Barron and Michelle Beck, uh, as the other two wives, do very, very well too. And um, we, we get the impression that um, Diane is going to wind up seducing everybody. Don't be so sure. Uh, and uh, the ride is a very uh, fun one to take. Um, but when we get into what will strike many people as gobbledygook um, in, in anything involving the Greek myths, um, that's where it's going to uh, flag for a lot of people. And uh, frankly, for me too, because I'm not up on my Greek myths at all. Um, too many names, too many letters, too much. <laughs> Sorry. So, um, so maybe I'm overreacting here, and maybe people will be able to uh, sift through all that uh, very easily, but I have a feeling they won't. Okay, so that is uh, Hurricane Diane down at New York Theater Workshop. Uh, next up, uh, Michael and I got a chance to get to see uh, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. Uh, Peter talked about it last week, so Michael, why don't you weigh in on this? Well, this is my third time seeing this beautiful production. Uh, I saw it twice down at the Museum of Jewish History and now uh, once here at... Uh, uh, <laughs> Stage 42. I had to right. think for a second. Uh, formerly, the, yes. for, formerly the little Schubert. And yes, as we've said several times and several people have made the points, I, I, I think and hope that maybe this production will break the curse of that theater, which has not had a hit until now. Uh, uh, it was um, – Almost f completely full when I went, and the and uh, that just did my heart good. I, I know Peter mentioned that when he has walked by the theater, he's seen mm -hmm. huge lines of people waiting to get in. So, so that's really great. Um, I I don't have much to add. Uh, Stephen Skybell as Tevia is giving a performance for the ages. He is just superb in the role. Uh, he made me cry several times. <laughs> um, at, at this performance and uh, he and the rest of the cast, uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it could not be better cast. It's, it's just 
incredible. I, I do find it so interesting. Peter um, alluded to this last week, or actually mentioned it, but I'm not sure if you uh, if you said Peter or if you noticed that apparently what has happened was uh, when the when the show is playing down at the museum, uh, what we saw in in the subtitles, the super yeah. titles or whatever right. was uh, of the, uh, what we saw uh, for the lyrics was a back translation of the Yiddish, which of mm -hmm. course is not, is not word for word, the Sheldon Harnick lyrics. Um, and, and, and that was interesting, but a little distracting. Uh, now uh, I would say that 99% of, of mm -hmm. of the what we see on the screen are the Sheldon Harnick lyrics. There are a couple right. of exceptions. They kept the line uh, uh, instead of "If I were a rich man," the Yiddish is translated is act actually as "When I am a Rothschild," uh, and this one I think says "If." If I were a Rothschild, uh, so they wanted to keep the Rothschild in because they, I guess, they thought it would be uh, confusing to the audience if they heard Rothschild and and he and uh, it said rich man. Uh, but yeah, m if most I of the. If I remember correctly, if yeah. I remember correctly, actually in the original story, um, Rothschild is used. I'm talking yes. about social. Yeah, so I, I think that's why they kept that one. But yeah, I mean, I really felt bad um, when the, the matchmaker lyric was lost, playing with matches a girl could get burned. That was not on the super title back um, right. down uh, museum, and now it is. So I, I, I do believe that the, I imagine they got complaints, or at least observations, uh, to make that change. And by the way, those complaints and observations may very well have come from Sheldon Turner, for all we know. Well, but, I, I, um, I, yeah, I was wondering about that. Maybe he thought. I mean, Sheldon is is the nicest, you know, sweetest. Oh, you bet. Smiled oh man. But you know, maybe he said, "Well, if it's gonna if it's gonna go on, maybe we can, you know, maybe do yeah, that." Or maybe I, I look forward. Yeah, maybe it was running into him and uh, and asking him that question. Yes, absolutely. I was asking. So if you do, let us know. Um, okay. I uh, yeah I I I don't uh, you know the to there were. Um, there's one <laughs> there's one I think flaw in this production that has carried forward and I don't know why they do it. The the fiddler is a, is a female. It's a woman. And it I wouldn't matter except that this show is so much about tradition and so much about them breaking it. Uh, you know, uh, where that famous scene at the wedding where Perchik just, you know, has the nerve to uh, actually dance with a woman and then, then gets everyone dancing, uh, you know, the men dancing with all the women and, and this incredibly joyous moment. So I don't know, I, you know, I, I, did, I don't know why they did that. And it's a small thing, but I wish that they would put a, a male fiddler in because I think just in terms of the tradition, it's a, it's a really important thing. Um, uh, and one other thing, uh, there are some, uh, I think some of the humor is lost in in the translation because some of the lines I think were, were funnier uh, with the rhythms that Joseph Stein put into them. For example, uh, there's a line that Golda has uh, where uh, 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 Seidel, I think, or, or one of the daughters is complaining because uh, she um, – uh, Yent is trying to uh, was trying to match her up with with a, a man who uh, was bald, and she didn't want that. And so Golda says, "You want hair? Marry a monkey." Well, uh, in this version, it's "You want hair? Marry a bear." And I don't know. It, it, it just the rhythm sounded off, and the audience didn't laugh. And uh, well, that famous Neil Simon thing about words with a K are funnier, you know? <laughs> <'cause there's> monkey, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, and also a rewritten is uh, the line, the way she sees and the way he looks, it's a perfect match. That was rewritten a little bit uh, in a way that even Jackie Hoffman didn't get a laugh with it. So there are a couple of those. On the other hand, uh, there are a couple of lines in Yiddish that are actually funnier because of the way they sound. So I guess it's a trade-off. And anyway, uh, it's, a, it's a small point. This is a, a miracle of a production absolutely beautiful and please 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 see it if you haven't or if you have uh, it's definitely worth a second or a third trip as was the case with with me it's so funny to hear you say on the other hand because of course that's <laughs> the, the line that's very important <laughs> very important in fiddler it comes up quite a bit you know i'm so. sure that that osmosis there <laughs> yes i think so too yeah <laughs> so um, uh, while y- y- you mentioned it was a small point, I, I had absolute, I had no no problem with the uh, fiddler being a-, a-, a woman, and in fact, I I sort of feel like you argued against your own point in saying that this is about a lot of breaking of tradition uh, in fiddler, and uh, you know it's such a small point, but well, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so you think that's an example of it. That's a, it's an example of breaking it. Um, I, I really enjoyed this production. the The cast is unbelievably amazing. I know, you know, uh, New York level of exposure to Yiddish, <laughs> various words here and there uh, that I, I caught sure. that I were I recognized. But I I had no problem with this. The this uh, the the super titles were uh, really clear and concise uh, when I needed to refer back to them. Um, I also, uh, I I wish there was some sort of way of turning them off. I wonder if they'll have any performances where they won't have supertitles. So that, uh, because I find that when the supertitles change, it caught my eye and it drew me back back to it. And I wish that I I was watching, I was less distracted from the stage. I think that stage 42 possibly could have a uh, mm. a hit here and they've extended they were originally scheduled through June and they've extended to September and uh don't wait to get your tickets because this is such a a, a wonderful cast and performance right now uh and just when you think that you have seen all the fiddlers here is a fiddler mm. you've never mm. seen and Exactly mm. exactly uh and uh, just really wonderful. Um, oh, and several other people have said to me exactly what uh, what Peter's uh, girlfriend said, uh, mm-hmm. that they, they initially had absolutely no interest mm-hmm. <laughs> in seeing this because they thought, I really don't, you know, I love Fiddler, but I really don't need to see another one. And then they heard and read all of the completely well-deserved raves, and now everyone wants to see it. So I'm mm-hmm. so happy about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter and Michael, I have a question about Fiddler, as you are much well, uh, much more versed in Fiddler than I am. So the Russian characters in this production of Fiddler, um, that is at stage 42, uh, they seem to be more make America great again type of people. Is, is is that the way that they are portrayed in other productions or is it, am I reading too much into this because of the current events? Well, the lines are exactly the same. I mean, there's been no change in the lines. Are you saying how, how, uh, how evil they are when they, and how destructive? Is that what you mean? Well, uh, I don't know if it's maybe 
the, the, the fact that they're wearing certainly not baseball caps, but red oh. hats. Oh, they're uh, wearing uh, red hats, uh, and I'm wondering uh, if if there has ever been a Fiddler <laughs> production that has been like placed in Ohio and uh, updated, uh, you know, sort of the way we do Shakespearean productions. To uh, sure, sure, and if that would go over uh, <laughs> with anybody. I think you're well within your rights to make that assumption, but um, it, it didn't occur to me. And um, what I've always loved about Fiddler was the fact that the constable is very nice to Tebby, as nice as mm. he can possibly be, even though his hands are tied um, in, in being the person he wants to be. Uh, there's even a point where um, he could really, really uh, get very furious with uh, Tevye because of um, one thing that Tevye says sets him off. I don't want to give it away, uh, just in case people don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but um, he, he, there's a tense moment, and then finally he pretends that Tevye was joking. He knows he wasn't, but he pretends he does because he really does like uh, Tevye. And it's, it's really nice that the point is made that if it weren't for these religious differences and all that, these two guys would really get along extraordinarily well. You know, and it's really too bad that um, all this comes, the bizarre and everything else comes between them. So no, I can't say that I found anything different there, um, but uh, I didn't think about the Red Hats. Um, yeah. um, but Me neither. That's an interesting point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's that's, that's, uh, that's a good point. I don't recall seeing that color in other productions, but I'm not sure. I, I do want to say also the guy uh, I have, since you mentioned it, the guy who plays the constable in this is absolutely fantastic. He I is, thought really. I thought there was that undercurrent of menace from the beginning, even though he's, yes, he he tries to be nice. Job. But even yeah. from the beginning here, one of his first lines is uh, something like, uh, Tevya, I've always thought you were, uh, you know, a decent fellow, even though you are a Jewish dog. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, uh, I heard somebody gasp uh, yeah, behind me yeah. when he said yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you remember, you can't spell red hat without hatred. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. So I've stolen that. That's not mine. Uh, I had no problem with the the very simple staging in the set. I thought it was uh, really oh, wonderful. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that there, this is a, I would say it's a Broadway radio must see. And we're going to have, mm-hmm. you know, the Times yeah, is uh, giving a critic's, uh, critic's right. pick. We're going to have to see yeah, a Broadway right. radio must see. So, uh, yeah, fine. So. I'll take that emotion. <laughs> heard, heard. All right. So um, Peter and Michael got over to MCC's uh, theater to see Alice by Heart. So Peter, why don't you start us off with that? Well, you know, um, I, I, I'm not saying it's necessarily funnier that anybody um, enjoys when I do this, but whenever I see something <laughs> rather strange, um, let's say like Gamma Gurton's Needle, I always leave the theater and say to the person, it reminded me of Man of La Mancha. Um, no matter what it is, I always say it reminds me of Man of La Mancha. Well, Alice by Heart reminded me of Man of La Mancha in a way, because um, this is now an Alice in Wonderland story that's set during the London Blitz. And because people are underground, uh, in the subways, uh, underground is what they call them. Um, they have nothing to do, so they decide essentially to put on a show, just as the people at Man of La Mancha do when they're in prison. Um, so there really is an analogy here. And um, so uh, it's Alice in Wonderland, which has always been a problematic property. And um, it was driving me crazy trying to think why it's so problematic 
uh, well, I understand why it's problematic from the vantage point that Alice is a passive character. There she is observing. You know, she has all these wondrous, uh, strange people in front of her, and all she can do is react. And that's not the thing I'm really talking about. What I'm talking about is I started thinking about Dorothy Gale, who's in the same situation, isn't she? And I wonder if the difference is that Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz immediately is in trouble. Um, the moment she gets to Oz, it takes only a few seconds before she realizes that her house accidentally fell on the Wicked Witch of the East. And here comes the <laughs> Wicked Witch of the West to um, to say, um, I'll get you my pretty or whatever she says. Um, you know, and so I think maybe that's the difference that Alice meets people who do um, frighten her. And why wouldn't they? Um, most of them confound her, but some really are frightening. And But I think it's because um, there isn't that threat at the very beginning that is always hanging over Dorothy's head. And what's really great about Dorothy is that she is brave under very difficult circumstances. She knows she's in trouble. Alice doesn't necessarily know that. Maybe that's the difference why she's such a passive character and we can't really get behind her. I have to say, too, the actress playing her I thought was rather one note. Um, so I didn't much enjoy her. But, um, but anyway, this is the new musical by the people who wrote Spring Awakening and um, I've gone on long and hard, um, arguably much too long and hard, about how um, Stephen Sater just does not understand that there's such a thing as a rhyming dictionary mm. and um, and that bothers me a great deal. Uh, in Spring Awakening I counted 59 uh, improper rhymes. I, I think there were fewer in this one. So um, uh, to borrow a line from the, one of my favorite movies, Return of the Secaucus 7, um, in a hundred years, who knows? Maybe um, uh, they'll get down to nothing. But anyway, one of my favorite things um, in, in lyric writing <laughs> is when somebody finds three rhymes where um, they're all spelled differently. For example, in Finian's Rainbow, E.Y. Harburg um, rhymes menace with Venice and tennis. Again, three words that rhyme perfectly, but they are spelled differently. And um, I, I'm not saying that anybody else does this, but when, when I seem to see in my head um, things written out as I hear them. So uh, that type of thing tickles me. Well, Stephen Sater um, is able to find three words that are uh, spelled differently, but um, they don't rhyme at all. Pain, changed, and same. So um, that um, bothered me a great deal, needless to say. I do think this is one of those shows that you come out and saying afterwards you say what the hell was that and I do feel that um, the idea of adding this concept of the London Blitz actually hurt the show more um, I think this is a show that doesn't need a concept because it's so difficult to begin with um, for people to really tie into and everybody has his own vantage point and appreciation of Alice in Wonderland but be that from not knowing it at all all the way to being um, a tremendous scholar in it um, yeah, I, I have a friend who's a critic who um, is so crazy about Alice in Wonderland that he named his daughter Alice, um, and uh, that was a very important thing to him. To uh, in fact, he said it was one of the thrills of um, her being a girl because it really um, was an opportunity for him to to, to show his uh, devotion to Alice in Wonderland. Anyway, he thought this was quite putrid. But um, uh. all things considered, one was uh, you know I I had a big issue with Spring Awakening because the music didn't sound of the period, and I like when music sounds of the period. Now in a situation like this, you don't need that because Alice is in a wonderland. It's a land we don't know. So any type of music really does apply. It's perfectly fine. If you want to do Gregorian chant or you want to do um, acid rock, you're well within your rights to do it. But you know what I think should have happened? I think that opening number 
which is set in the 1940s, should be a song that sounds like the 1940s. I think that would have been a very good idea. So, um, so anyway, up in come these characters, and some of the costuming is is um, more interesting than not. But uh, all things considered, um, I I don't feel that this is a disaster the way most people I talk to have felt. But um, I do think that um, adding on this concept um, didn't help it at all and hindered it tremendously. All right, Michael, what did you think? Yeah, I don't think it's a disaster either, but I, I don't think it works. Uh, so I guess we agree on that. I The point has been made um, in discussion and reviews of this show that I guess it was not that long ago that the the source material went into public domain. And since that time, everybody and their brother is, write, is writing some kind of, uh, you know, postmodern adaptation of uh, – of Alice, uh, you know, whether musical or non. And so, um, you know, but gosh, it, 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 you know, don't use it if, it if it's not appropriate. The, the setup here, uh, to be a little more specific, is that all of these people are seeking re- refuge in, a, in, a, in the underground, in the, in the London tube, you know, in the subway uh, during the Blitz because, it, you know, to get away from the bombs, etc. cetera. Uh, and so uh, among them, is Alice this this young girl young woman named Alice and um, uh, a friend of hers who is uh, apparently uh, suffering from TB uh, in and uh, and I'm not sure if he's also supposed to have been injured on top of that but anyway he's got TB so he's in pretty bad shape and she um, uh, decides to sort of tell him or, or act out the story of, of Alice in Wonderland uh, and through the looking glass with him as a sort of uh, way to buck him up and, you know, a sort of a therapy or, or as a, you know, therapeutic kind of thing. Um, I did, uh, by the way, Peter, uh, Mandela Lamancha leapt into my head also, and another oh, uh, really? play. Yeah, and another uh, one a play that that is somewhat similar is Marat Saad. You know, yeah, yeah, good, right, yes. In all these mm-hmm. cases, you have pe- people in very grim circumstances, uh, you know, acting out a play within a play for for whatever reason. So I guess it's you know it's not the first show to do this, and it probably won't be the last. But I but. To make a long story short, I, I'm not sure how the Alice story terribly reson- – especially resonates with what's going on here. I mean because it's really – Alice is about uh, – Alice and Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass are about many things. But but you know, I, I, it's about her coming of age and uh, there's a lot of other stuff going on with, with those characters uh, – you know uh, the the Cheshire Cat and the and and the Queen of Hearts and all those people, but I don't know what it really has to do with the situation here. I don't think it's a survival story for one thing. So I I, I don't get that. I, I think they they probably should have just used something else if they wanted to uh, to um, set a uh, set something during the Blitz and have these refugees in the underground because I, I you know and they probably only used it because it's in public domain so and it's so popular um, but I think it's a mistake the the program includes a, an insert that that gives you a description yeah. of all the of all the characters 
you know, from from Lewis Carroll, because I think to, they, they feel like it isn't made clear enough by the storytelling mm-hmm. who's supposed to be playing who. And and so that was, a you know, I think an acknowledgement that they didn't do a very good job of that. Um, I have said before, we've discussed Spring Awakening, and, and I can't quite explain this, but any better than I have already. But the false rhymes in Spring Awakening don't bother me only because I know that that modern pop and rock music is written that way. And the music in Spring Awakening is supposed to be sung by these very modern counterparts of these 1890s German teenagers. So that is the concept, you know, like it or not. And so therefore it didn't bother me in that. But in this show, the lack of rhymes bothered me tremendously. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's appropriate to this material, even though, well, you know, because first of all, it's not set in, in modern day. It's, it's set in the, 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 the framing device is set in the 1940s. And as far as I know, lyrics to songs in the 1940s all rhymed so uh, so it, and it probably shouldn't be a rock score either uh, you know uh, even though I, I, I understand Peter's justification for it but there were a lot of there were a lot of really annoying lyrics His one that uh, actually another critic noted that I wrote down uh, quote there are rooms you leave behind other wounds of other times other songs fill your mind rabbits lead you for a while picture books a cheshire smile summer drifts like a child so there you're going back and forth between real rhymes and false rhymes and i think it just confuses the audience and and you know our ear is trying to focus on you know whether it's rhyming or not and it's a big mess so i i i i really thought it uh, that it was a flawed idea to begin with and and then unfortunately they didn't they didn't solve all the the tremendous problems i do like the music itself i i i like uh duncan cheek's music i think it's always very melodic and very catchy in a, in a modern pop uh rock way so i i i i'm a big fan of his but i don't think that the lyrics worked on this occasion i thought the direction by jesse nelson was very problematic and the choreography i'm not sure how i think about it by rick and jeff cooperman uh it was very interesting but just so much going on all the time i think that was also confusing as well um a great new space, though. <laughs> the Robert. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. This is the new, uh, the new theater. I guess it's you would say a complex because there are t- at least two theaters in it. Is that true, Peter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And Peter just recently reported on the other show in in, in right, this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is called the Robert W. Wilson uh, MCC Theater Space, uh, Far West Fifty Second Street, and uh, and aside from everything, the stage is enormous. I mean, it looked to me like it was fully Broadway size, maybe even wider uh, than mm-hmm. a normal Broadway stage. So there, there are endless possibilities of what could be done there. All right. So uh, that is Alice by Heart at MCC. I, I wanted to bring up our our friend Adam Feldman. Uh, he uh, about a month ago on Facebook wrote that uh, Dear Theater People. No more Peter Pan adaptations and no more Alice in Wonderland adaptations. I'm sorry, but these are the new rules. So I guess we'll have to pay attention to that. I have to say that uh, Drew and Stiles wrote a Peter Pan that is so sensational, and I think it's better than the one we know. So, uh, And I came to that with such, 
such dubious feelings of thinking, why did they bother to write a Peter Pan when we have that perfectly decent one? Whoa. Try to get a recording of it. There is one. Um, I, I, I think it's a regional production, but um, Drew and Styles, the guys who wrote the extra songs for um, Mary Poppins and um, and the musical Honk, which has never played Broadway, but was a big success in London, even beat out The Lion King as best musical of the year. They're terrific talents, uh, and um, certainly their Peter Pan is one that I admire to the nth degree. All right, Michael. So you got a chance to see uh, Broadway by the year. Tell us uh, which years were these covering? Act one was 1928 and act two was 1935. Um, This was on Monday, the 25th at Town Hall. Uh, The latest in a continuing series uh, just orchestrated and put together and hosted, et cetera, et cetera, by Scott Siegel, who, uh, you know, this he's been doing this for years. And as we've discussed recently, Scott had a horrible, uh, very bad, serious uh, accident. He was on a bike uh, so several months ago and he uh, he had an, an awful accident and uh, it was really quite serious and actually I got to visit him in the hospital um, a couple of days after it happened but there was a tremendous outpouring of uh, of love from friends and audience members and 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 there was a GoFundMe campaign so he's he's doing much better he he was on a cane uh, when he walked out uh, to introduce this show but he's he, you know he's 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 doing much better and he's he's still out there doing it so so congratulations to him and we're so happy that uh that the recovery is going so well uh there was a big new york times article on it um so you can you can check that out if you if you haven't seen it that kind of details what happened and how he came back from it um but uh these shows have always been wonderful in terms of the programming and the casting and this one was no exception um we had chuck cooper uh dewey uh just really uh holding the audience in the palm of his hand with songs such as making whoopee uh ali ewald uh, who has recently been uh, christine on broadway in phantom of the opera um singing several things in her gorgeous high soprano uh, erica hennigson um uh, uh, and Quentin Earl Darrington, who I tell you, it, you know, I, I mean, he's already made uh, quite a name for himself on Broadway in uh, as Cole House in the revival of Ragtime. And he was recently in uh, Once on This Island and he's done a few other things. But if I, I almost think that if that uh, this show could be his star making vehicle because he he came out and sang um uh, softly as in a morning sunrise from the new moon, and he sang it unplugged. And I, I as I say, I've heard him in those other shows. Uh, it always seemed to me in the past that I've mostly heard him singing more baritone material, but this is really pretty high tenor. And he sang it unplugged. I had never heard him sing in that range. He sounded absolutely phenomenal. And because he was singing unplugged, you know, you could hear a pin drop in the audience. And when he finished the the ovation was just beyond belief um so he you know he, he is one of our most treasured 
performers, and I would go see him in absolutely anything. Um, then in Act Two, he sang My Romance from Jumbo, because uh, that's a 1935 show, and he killed with that also. Uh, it was an evening of highlights by all these people. And on top of everything, uh, there were several numbers, several dance numbers um, featuring Danny Gardner, uh, who we know from the uh, unfortunately short-lived Broadway revival of Dames at Sea uh, and some other things. Uh, he, uh, Danny Gardner, has put together a group called the Broadway by well called the Broadway by the Year Dance Troupe, and they did several out and out major dance numbers, including the opener uh, "Crazy Rhythm" uh, from something called. Here's how, and then the uh, the closing number was "Begin the Begin" from Jubilee. Uh, so that not all of the uh, Broadway by the Year shows feature uh, choreography. Uh, there have been some in the past where Noah Racy uh, had uh, danced and and choreographed some numbers, and then I could think of a few other examples. Sometimes they're uh, they're more uh, on the vocal end. Uh, but but this one, I think the audience just really, really loved the fact that there was so much excellent dancing in it to, um, you know, to go along with the with the fabulous singing. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving people out. John Easterlin uh, is a is an opera singer who 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 scored with several numbers. Uh, he led the uh, ensemble in Stout Hearted Men. And uh, he he uh, also sang with Ali Ewalt uh, and they they were a big hit and wanting you from the new moon. So on and on and on. It was just a great evening. One of the best in the series. I'm so glad it's still here. I'm so glad Scott is doing so much better and can't wait to see the next one. So um, the article in the Times um, uh, was written by a guy named James Barron. And uh, you might not know James Barron. He writes occasional features uh, related to theater. Um but he is very much responsible for Broadway radio. Um, oh, oh my! Yeah. So James Barron, uh, James Barron was one of the first podcasters uh, at the New York Times. He had a daily podcast that basically gave the headlines of the day, and it is what today on Broadway is based upon. And I mean, James Barron did it. I'm gonna say. 10 to 15 years ago, and I used to listen wow. to it every day, and it was always my template and basis for um, what we did on uh, how we pr- how we put together the Today on Broadway uh, podcast that Matt Tamanini and I do on a daily basis, Monday through Friday. Uh, and James Barron, I've, I've traded some e- – I don't think I've ever met him. I've traded some emails with him, and he's been very supportive of the theatrical community and Broadway, and he's so intelligent. And this article, uh, I didn't realize that he had written it about Scott Siegel, but he's uh, – James Barron at the New York Times is just a gem. Great. And good for you for giving him credit. You know, I, I love when people share credit. That they, yes. Um, yes. Uh, that's it's a wonderful thing to do, because as Max Gordon wrote in his autobiography, if the pie is big enough, there are enough slices for everyone. So, <laughs> so as pie. a result, it's nice of you to, to give his slice. <laughs> so uh, to round out uh, the the day today, uh, Michael and I got over to fifty four below on uh, March first. Uh, when was March 1st? Was it Friday night? Friday night. To, at 54 Below to see Robbie Rizal, Songs from Inside My Locker. So, Michael, how did you enjoy your evening at 54 Below? 
Oh, I loved it. I thought it was just delightful. Robbie, uh, we know primarily from his work with Broadway Records, um, and he, uh, you know, he uh, talks about how he, you know, like so many of us, he did shows in high school, et cetera. But I guess he, uh, you know, he, his, whatever, whether he ever thought he might be a professional performer, it didn't happen that way. And he's certainly had great accomplishments in, in related fields, but, you know, but he's been around all these fabulous people and he's directed shows. Uh, I know he's directed shows. Uh, he's worked with Melissa Errico and, and some uh, other fabulous people. And he's been getting, um, more, into the uh, into the direct involvement aspect of it over over the past several years, so here he 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 did this really really wonderful show at fifty four below Feinstein's fifty four below and uh, I I remember um, I always remember Roy Sander a wonderful uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, journalist and 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 uh, sure. uh, specifically focusing on cabaret always used to say always used to advise people not to tell their life story in shows and i would always say but roy you know what if it's what if it's funny and he said well oh if it's funny it's fine then i allow it you know and that was kind of the case here robbie uh talked about uh you know doing doing shows in high school and, and funny stories about that and 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 he was just so charming and delightful you know roles he uh wanted and you know roles he did and roles he didn't do and roles he coveted etc cetera, etc cetera. um the the program was great. He did a a, a fabulous um, uh, what would you call it like a weather medley? I guess a rain and sun medley. He started with the verse of over the rainbow, which is relatively rarely heard uh, when all the world is a hopeless jumble and the raindrops tumble all around. And then that went into the chorus of tomorrow. The sun will come out tomorrow. So that I don't think I had ever heard anyone do that. Uh, that's how the medley started. And then he uh, he went on and he sang um, uh, the Beatles song. Here comes the sun was in there. And it was just a, a really terrific medley that the audience just loved uh he uh robbie also did a song i didn't know what it was in my uh the the friend i went with had to tell me it was from crazy ex-girlfriend uh and that was a tremendous uh audience favorite also uh on top of everything he had great guests and he had a terrific six-piece band which i think maybe is the the most I've ever seen and heard at, at Feinstein's 54 below. And they added to it tremendously. Um, I, I just had a delightful evening and the audience was enraptured and, uh, and he's making a recording of it. In fact, I think, uh, I, I imagine they recorded on more than one night, but, but they were recording, uh, on Friday while we were there. So, um, listen for us in the audience reaction. Maybe you'll hear yeah. us. <laughs> Yeah, this was the culmination of Robbie's uh, Kickstarter campaign to fund uh, the rec uh, live recording of his album, and he had two performances that they recorded uh, uh, last week, I think, in, in late February, and then this one that was just on Friday. Uh, uh, Long-time listeners know that Robbie has been uh, a guest on multiple different shows on Broadway Radio, and he's a longtime fan uh, of us, and I'm a longtime fan of him. I think I've known Robbie for a very long time, I want to say more than 20 years or so. Um, 
And so I, I can't be objective. We had a wonderful time. It was great to see him on sh- on stage, uh, reaching a goal that he had set for himself many many years ago. <laughs> it's just it, it's just so heartwarming, and to see you know Melissa Erico there cheering him on, and various other uh, folks of the of the Broadway community sitting there. Um, uh, 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 fellow podcasters that were there, the uh, the broad wasted guys were there. Um, uh, who was sitting with you at your table, Michael? I, f- I forget who was. Uh, somebody was with you. I I forget uh, next to us. And uh, Patrick from Theater People Podcast was there, and so we had a lot of podcasting contingencies out there, as well as yeah. stars like Melissa Erico. So it was a real wonderful time, and congratulations to Robbie for uh, for pulling off, uh, you know, having a vision and making it happen. That's... I was with Matt Koplick, and Robbie has been a guest on his 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 podcast. Uh, and then I think uh, Melissa, I'm not sure, but I think actually Melissa was maybe video- videoing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw some <laughs> so, stuff that she had posted on Facebook. Yeah. So that was great. And I'm sure she, of course, she cleared it, you know. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you could subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of board front page of broadwayradio.com there's a subscribe link that way each and every time we have a new episode of this week on broadway it'll be automatically downloaded to apple podcasts for you of course you don't have to listen to us on apple podcasts many ways to listen to us some of them are iHeartRadio places tune in places stitcher places google play places anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts you can get broadway videos offerings contact information for peter for michael and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com in the show notes as well as links to some of the things we've talked about this morning. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah. The question was, after he finished filming one of the most controversial films of the 60s, he was scheduled to play the lead in a musical, one that would become more famous for launching the career of a young woman who played the supporting role. I'm not just asking who he is or what the film or musical is. I want you to tell me the names of three other performers who appeared in the film. One became one of Broadway's most valuable performers. One appeared in the 50s film musical that used most of the original cast, but she was one of the new performers. And finally, he appeared in more than one of the film versions of Broadway musicals and almost did one, a film version that was recently revived on Broadway. So who are these people? Well... The movie is The Manchurian Candidate, which starred Lawrence Harvey. Um, now, he was supposed to be in I Can Get a Few Wholesale, which, of course, launched the career of Barbara Streisand. Also in the movie was Angela Lansbury, and she's the one who, of course, had one of the all-time great careers on the Broadway stage. Um, that Leslie Parrish was the person I was going for who was in the stage uh, – I'm sorry, the film musical of a uh, um, uh, stage show, and uh, that featured most of the original cast. Now, I really think that that was a tiny red herring because when people think of original casts being in movies of the 50s um, in musicals, you immediately go to Damn Yankees and Pajama Game. But indeed, Little Abner did much the same thing. So, um, and um, it, it really was a tough question, I will grant you. And um, what was really ironic is that um, the other person I was going for was Frank Sinatra, who appeared in many Broadway musical adaptations on the town, Higher and Higher, Pal Joey, plenty of others too. And he was almost in Carousel. But our new champion of trivia, um, Tony Janicki, um, actually didn't mention Frank Sinatra uh, because he made a case for um, for Janet Lee, 
<laughs> because she was in uh, the movie version of Hazel Flag, which was called Living It Up. And of course, she was in the Bye Bye Birdie movie. And um, he pointed out that she was considered for uh, the movie of Oklahoma and almost got the part that went to Shirley Jones. Well, uh, on the other hand, um, Oklahoma wasn't last year's revival. It's this year's revival. Or unless you think, well, you know, it was last year. <laughs> it's St. Anne's Warehouse. So I have to give him credit for it. But Jack Lester actually came up with all of the above as well as Frank Sinatra. And they were the only two who uh, took a stab at it. And, um, and it was so credit to both. So, all right, let's see um, if uh, Tony gets this one this week or if somebody can beat him to it. Uh, we shall certainly see what we shall see. But um, the question I'm asking this week involves um, an actress who, well... Um, she was in a musical in the early 60s where she supported one of the most famous entertainers of all time. The song in which they duetted became a popular song of its time and is still occasionally heard today. Before this happened, though, she had been married to a composer who would later write a big 1960s hit, which probably narrowly, narrowly missed winning the Tony for Best Musical. So who is she? who was her legendary co-star in that early 60s musical. What's the name of her ex-husband? And what was the musical that he composed? Okay. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We fell so far below And never found the center Another word or two And all the summer knew In the song the same.